Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, my vast, invisible cyberspace audience. Um, who probably isn't even there now. Uh, some interesting stuff just before I start to talk about marriage again. Because this whole process of talking into air, uh, into cyberspace, and uh, doing the show uh, has me intrigued. I could probably find out more specific information, uh, answer some of my questions, although for a variety of reasons I'd rather not. Um, uh, I, I, when I'm always asking for people to call in and engage in a dialogue, and uh, finally, uh, some gentleman, I think it was a gentleman, uh, sent me a message, for which I thank him, um, that uh, I'm telling stories and people don't like to interfere with a storyteller. And that's possibly true. It's possibly true. Maybe there's something in the way I speak that uh, uh, people come and listen later on, but but uh, maybe I turn off uh, or, or, or somehow are uh, sending a message I don't really want to hear from people. That's always possible. I don't experience it that way, but that's possible. But when I look, I can get data by going on, uh, by clicking a button and seeing how many live callers I have. Now, for the last uh, two months, I've been getting thousands and thousands of people who come to my site. Again, one of the things I don't want to know is how long they stay there. Because if the great majority of these individuals click on the site, listen for two minutes, and click off the site, uh, that would bother me so much, I really do think I would stop doing this show. Uh, maybe not, because I do enjoy it, and it leaves a little bit of, uh, little, leaves a little bit of me, uh, 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 external to me, which I kind of like. Uh, it's an ego thing. But anyway, uh, very few live listeners. So nobody's calling, in part, because there's nobody there. Uh, they come on afterwards. Uh, they go in and most, you know, use the browser uh, to click onto the show. So anyway, if somebody's there, uh, next week uh, I may or may not do a show. Uh, I, I would like to uh, have people maybe, uh, if they're listening, whenever they listen, send a message about what they would like to discuss. Let's share some stories. Uh, if I'm telling stories and uh, I'm not the uh, 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 I'm turning on people to respond. Maybe uh, the best thing to do uh, would be to uh, maybe the best thing to do would be to um, uh, share. You know, people tell me stories. Not, not that I want to do therapy on on this media because uh, it can easily turn out to be. But you could talk about stories, stories about life. Uh, or anything that you might want me to respond to. Uh, I like doing that. Uh, within the topics uh, that I present, uh, you know, the people, if you've been listening to this show for a while, there is a, a feel you have for the kind of stuff that uh, we might relate to well and enjoy uh, speaking and uh, bringing more of an audience in. So let's go back to marriage. Um, I had a variety, a wide variety of topics I never, I never discussed last week. I didn't discuss divorce, uh, and I'm going to leave divorce for a while, 
because what I really would like to talk about now are children. Um, I have three, and I currently have six grandchildren, and I've said many times to many people, uh, one of the few joys and pleasures of growing older is having grandchildren. They're wonderful. Uh, you know, as long as they're healthy, and now I have more people to worry about because I do worry about, uh, you know, the vulnerability of my family. And uh, I have three children, six grandchildren. Uh, the wonderful thing about grandchildren is that you uh, screw up your own children. You make your mistakes with your own. Uh, you, but you learn. Most of us do learn a lot. So we're much more liberal and much more relaxed when it comes to our grandchildren. The other thing is, in most cases, or in many cases, we don't have to raise them. Uh, I don't have to pay for the six to go to college. Uh, that's somebody else's responsibility. And so um, um, I won't discuss grandchildren as a topic. However, uh, they do play a role in redefining a marriage because having children and then grandchildren redefines your marriage. The marriage is never the same after the first child is born. Uh, and uh, I have seen so many marriages uh, grow stronger and more loving uh, because of the presence of a child, the shared us, the us that creates a child, and the us that raises the child. And I have seen so many relationships founder and go under because of the very same fact that uh, profound disagreements um, exist within the relationship that relate to the children that don't get negotiated or don't get worked out. Let me just give you one because uh, I've had a number of cases over the years that I've worked with, uh, with inter-religious marriages, people of different marriages who are perfectly happy living together and accepting um, the other one's faith. Uh, there's a proviso here. In almost all of the cases I've been involved with, somebody can be Catholic or Protestant, somebody else can be Jewish uh, or, or whatever, as long as they're not too intense or fanatical about the religion. Uh, sometimes the marriage uh, uh, leads to a, a um, conversion where one of the partners converts to the religion of the other, sometimes because of pressure, sometimes because of, uh, uh, of a desire uh, to engage or get closer to the, to the mate, to the spouse, and sometimes because when they're exposed to the religion uh, that they really didn't know anything about until they really lived with somebody of that faith, they like the other religion uh, and uh, really wanted to be a part of it. I've seen that, and it, that's something uh, that I've seen can really draw a relationship together. But if there are differences uh, in religion that are under the radar, so to speak, that the people who are living together, who are married, can ignore, very often they can't ignore it once the children are born. Because then the question is, what religion do we raise our children I have seen cases where this is sort of uh, pushed away by saying, well, let the child um, choose. Uh, always a very strange thing for me to try and understand uh, how a child is going to choose a religion and choose between the parents. Uh, 
when I talk about divorce, uh, I, I'm going to come back to this because one of the most one of the things that I see damage relationships and damage children the most. And I use the word damage because uh, it's something children can't do. That is, choose between their parents. Who's right? Who's wrong? Uh, when there's a war about something in a relationship, in a marital relationship, and the children uh, become involved and become combatants. Uh, and are put under enormous pressure from one or both of the parents to choose the side or the other, one side or the other, the mother or the father. Uh, children simply are caught in a in a conflict, enormous conflict that is emotional and social, uh, and it, it absolutely uh, makes it impossible for them to think clearly. Uh, they have all kinds of terrible, conflicting emotions. Uh, and ultimately, um, I've seen so many of these children who are caught up in this kind of conflict, particularly when I get to divorce, and the child is a combatant in terms of you have to choose who you love more, me or your stupid father, or me or your stupid mother. Uh, and each parent talks against the other, uh, uh, co-opting or trying to co-opt the affection and the loyalty of the children um, just, just to run ahead a bit, I have said to many couples I've worked with who are in the throes of divorce, divorce each other, but don't divorce the children. And for God's sakes, let's talk about keeping them as non-combatants in this. They can't choose to who they love more, their mother or their father. This is a, a an impossibility. Uh, as we grow as children, we may decide we like one parent more than another. Uh, we may decide we don't like a parent or don't like both of our parents. I mean, this happens all the time, although that produces tremendous conflict in most of the people I've ever worked with who turn against their parent. I, I've said this many times. You can't beat your parents. Uh, you can't win in a war with your own parents. Uh, it causes too much guilt, too much shame, too much pain. Um, and this, even in cases where parents I would consider, you know, just awful to their children, uh, abusive and, and uh, ignoring them and choosing drugs and alcohol uh, over children. Whenever I work with couples who are heavy drinkers or one is a heavy drinker, one of the questions I ask is, when did you first decide you love booze or drugs more than your children? Uh, that's a question that can also be asked. When did you learn to love drugs and alcohol more than your own life? Um, in any event, uh, children change everything. They just change everything. Uh, you may have a wonderful sex life. For the day your children are born, uh, there is tremendous change in your sex life. First of all, what you don't experience, I experience this, and every man I ever knew experienced this, particularly uh, if you have a son. Uh, mommy loves the son, and uh, the son more than the husband in many cases, uh, or certainly differently. Um, I once came across a question. Uh, oh, you can use this uh, on people you know. You're in a rowboat. There's your wife and your child and the rowboat is sinking, you can only save one of the people. You can save your wife, you could save your child, or you could save your husband, or you could save your child. Who do you save? 
And uh, this is fascinating. More men say they'd save the wife than the child. And when asked why, uh, even though it's an agonizing decision, and even though this is not really happening, so we, in fact, don't know what would really take place if the boat was sinking and who the husband would save, he says, because if I save my wife, I can have more children. If I save my child, I lose my wife. And I find that interesting. Uh, first of all, when young men lose their wives, uh, they often find another wife very quickly, which sets up interesting dynamics, particularly if she's been previously married and if she has children of her own. Yours, mine, and ours uh, is, is an interesting topic that I won't go into, but it is a very, very uh, tough one to solve uh, in terms of integrating the entire family into one family where both parents, the, 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 uh, the natural parent and the, married, the new married parent, the step-parent, uh, are actually respected and seen as authority figures. But to go back to uh, the original, uh, you find yourself as a, I'm sorry, and the woman almost always says, I'd save my child over the husband. And when you uh, have children and you watch a woman, uh, most women, not all women, I mean, nothing is ever true, but this has been my experience and the studies uh, that have been done uh, very often back up the, the experience. Um, a woman's intensity of love and need to protect a child is, is something that most men simply don't experience, even if they love that child. I'll give you a personal story about this because uh, I shared this story with a number of people who then told me that they felt very similar. They were in similar situations. My youngest daughter needed a surgery. And um, <clears throat> I forget how old she was. She was a teenager. And she needed the surgery. And it wasn't a life-threatening surgery. But uh, we both worried, my wife and I, when your child goes under the knife and your child uh, has to go undergo anesthesia, which is really the most dangerous part of any operation. It's the anesthesia. Uh, you can have your heart opened and the valves changed and, and all kinds of really serious surgeries. In the hands of a good surgeon, the risk is far less than the anesthesia. The anesthesia is, uh, I've had a couple of surgeries in recent years, and that's what really panicked me. I trusted the, the surgeons. Maybe I shouldn't, but it worked out. Uh, but I worried more about the anesthesia. So my, children, my child was undergoing anesthesia. <clears throat> Uh, we were up all night. Uh, we took it to the hospital early in the morning. The surgery took place at about 1 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning or 12 o'clock, I forget. But it was late. Uh, we were both tired. I was hungry. Uh, she was brought down from recovery, and she smiled at us, and she was kind of loopy uh, from the anesthesia. But it was clear to me uh, that she was, she was okay. And I said to my wife, let's go have something to eat. And her response was immediate. She said, I don't eat until my child eats. So I went out and I found a nice place and had a hamburger, a cheeseburger, and some fries, which restored me. But I, I was so struck by that. Um, the intensity of the feeling that as long as there's any aspect of that child's needs uh, that are unmet, uh, the mother's needs I'll come, come, come later. And for my needs, 
And I tell you, I think I love my children as much as anybody could love their children. Um, so <laughs> I, I found that kind of interesting. And it's been backed up by the experience because I tell that story sometimes to people. And they laugh. And most of the men I know and, and some of the patients I've had where I bring the story in to make clear that what is going on in the relationship is the inability of uh, the husband or the wife, in, in some cases, to accept the fact that they've moved from the number one position to a different position, or they really experience themselves as in the number two position. Um, sex changes. Your sex life will change with children. And this is something, again, that has to be negotiated maybe over and over again. Uh, the children will hear us. Um, the, 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 if a child is sick, uh, I, had a, I had a, again, and this, this is along the lines of my story with the anesthesia, uh, I had a couple that, uh, whose marriage was foundering. They had a child who was dying. This was a very tragic story. Uh, they had a child, a girl, who had a brain tumor. And uh, they kept hacking out pieces of the brain tumor, and the kid was in decline. And it was clear that this child eventually was going to die. And this went on for over a year. And the husband wanted to have sex. And the wife said she couldn't imagine having sex when her child is dying in the next room. And as a therapist, you don't take sides. And as a human being, I really felt I could see both sides of it. Um, a year and a half is a long time for someone to go without sex. Usually it's the male who would have more of a problem than the female. Although, again, uh, life adversity can kill the sex drive in anyone, uh, as particularly if somebody is depressed. I mean, one of, the, one of the earliest signs that somebody is in some kind of significant depression is the loss of appetite, and among the appetites, one of the most vulnerable uh, is uh, sex drive, is, is libido. So uh, this was a very difficult situation, and ultimately we worked out a solution. Um, what we first had to do was stop the husband from whining and threatening, and the wife from uh, shutting down and not talking to him, because um, nothing could be negotiated when you have this kind of a standoff, when there's emotional freezing and bullying. I talked about that last week, and it, you know it's very true uh, in my experience that when you're yelling at somebody or threatening somebody, they don't hear the, the, the underlying message anymore. Your need is drowned by the shout of your own voice. And what did we work out? Uh, once a month, uh, they hired a babysitter. That's what she would allow. And they would go to a motel. And under those circumstances, they'd go for dinner and they would have a couple of drinks, which, uh, uh, you know, watered, which lubricated some of the wheels of interaction uh, and relaxed them a little bit. And then they would have intercourse. Uh, and then they would come back later that night uh, and resume the death watch over a child that they both loved. Uh, by the way, as an interesting statistic, when a child dies, the uh, <clears throat> damage to the relationship, a marital relationship, is usually very great. 
And studies have shown anywhere between 70 and 90% of marriages will break up uh, over the death of a child. And that has to be partitioned, because I'm drifting into another topic here. But I've had in my career several cases of parents come in after a child had not only died but committed suicide. And I used to say to my students, if you really want to get even and destroy your parents because you hate them, and because you hate them, you hate yourself, which is almost the case of hating yourself, has to do with uh, terrible things that go on between parent and child, uh, commit suicide. <laughs> You'll end your misery, but boy, will you do a job on your parents. Um, the only time a marriage seems to do well is if a child dies for a purpose, so that uh, uh, a child who dies in war uh, and is a hero uh, and was doing their duty, uh, although the proviso here is that everybody feels that the war is justified and this child simply wasn't taken from them and put into war uh, for the needs of the, the rulers or the oil companies or whatever uh, was going on in, in this case, uh, that stimulated the war. Uh, that causes an unending pain, a pain that doesn't go away, but allows for a justification, <coughs> excuse me, a, for a justification that won't exist in a suicide and even in uh, death by, by an illness or accident. Um, it, it becomes, there are all kinds of dynamics that I'm not going to go into uh, that uh, anybody would like me to discuss them, contact me, send me a message, and we'll talk about that particular aspect about why these marriages are put under, and these relationships are put under such tremendous stress by the death of a child. Okay, uh, let's see. Discipline. Um, did I ever do a show on the discipline of children? I did, and, and probably if I didn't, you know my belief is that I don't believe in corporal punishment. I don't believe in authoritarian families. I don't believe in coercion through force. Uh, and the fact that uh, you're disciplining a child with force and coercing that child, to me, is no more morally right than a husband or a wife coercing their mate into agreeing by the use of force. It's abuse. And uh, I'm going to get all kinds, of, I always get all kinds of, well, spare the rod, spoil the child. In the good old days, uh, children were spanked, and this led to a much better generation. Uh, children respected their parents. No. no. Children feared. When children are hit, they fear. Respect is earned. Fear is induced. Uh, I recognized that as a teacher, when I was a professor, and I knew a lot of teachers, some teachers and students confuse the fear they had of the teacher and their use of punishment and their use of grades and blackmail and bullying uh, with respect. Respect feels very, very different. Now, you can fear someone and respect them. I think you can. Um, the best teachers, the best relationships are one based on respect. And this is true of a marriage that's based on respect rather than fear and the discipline of a child. But here again, vast differences will exist in how, in the parent's belief in how to discipline a child based upon their own upbringing uh, and based upon many other factors that um, can lead to conflict within the relationship. And that has to be negotiated. 
if one of the parents sees the the uh, authoritarian coercion, and I use those words because that's what I believe it is, the authoritarian coercion of the child to be abuse, that's not something they're going to accept. Also, all kinds of dynamics exist. Uh, if there's a tension in the relationship, then the child can be used in a way uh, where one parent pillories the other, uh, not because they necessarily care that there's abuse going on or discipline that's that's based on you know physical discipline and coercion, but because they're able to turn the uh, disciplinarian, the authoritarian disciplinarian, to the bad guy. And one of the damages to any relationship, really big damages, is uh, one parent uh, negating the value or the moral uh, position of another parent in front of the child. And these are all uh, things that need to be worked out if that relationship is going to continue to flourish so that there's this healthy I and healthy you and the healthy us. And certainly um, the us becomes greatly enhanced if children are part of the us. Uh, if there are vacations together, uh, if there's a day in the week or maybe two weeks or maybe a necessary a day in the month when the entire family can get together. Um, I think, again, from my observation, from my experience, uh, a family that can sit down and peacefully and enjoyably have a dinner, if not every day, I mean, that becomes extremely difficult now with this terrible economy you have where uh, mothers work and fathers work, and sometimes uh, it's more than one job, uh, and sometimes, you know, children, what we call the latchkey child, comes home, and the parents uh, are worried about that child. Did they get home? And are they all right alone at home? Uh, I mean, we're so fearful of, of bad guys doing bad things to our children, um, and yet it becomes extremely difficult uh, for a relationship and for a family to grow as a unit, uh, unless there are some shared activities. As I said last week, I'll say again this week, the marriages that I've seen that have been successful, he has his activities and she has her activities, their interests, their separate loves, but that there's a good overlap, a common set of activities, time to discuss, time to talk, uh, time to make love, uh, I mean, real time uh, to make love, uh, vacations, things that sometimes economics makes impossible. Uh, I just spoke to a young man who's getting a divorce. Uh, I won't tell you who or how I spoke to him. They're getting a divorce. For the last two years, she worked the night shift and he worked the days. And uh, they don't see each other. And uh, they look at each other and uh, she may have met somebody and... He's been feeling uh, stultified because they have children and he's raising the children. During the day, he puts them on the bus to school. He takes them off and he works uh, in between the hours that he is the house husband. And it's not that he minds taking care of the children. I genuinely believe what he said. He loves taking care of his children. It's that, uh, as he put it, I don't see my friends. I don't do any of the things I love to do or used to do. So it's the presence of the children and then this economic pressure 
so that there is a you, there's a me, and there ain't no us. Makes for a very, very difficult, uh, tense, sometimes uh, annoying, and sometimes hostile relationship. What else? I could go on forever on these topics, but I'm going to, I have some other uh, issues I'd like to discuss. Um, Let's see. Yes. When you first are married or meet somebody and you're in your honeymoon phase, whether this is before or after the marriage, uh, excuse me, the formal marriage, um, it is easy, really easy, uh, to um, relate. Uh, Nature really knew what it was doing when it made sex the pleasurable act that uh, it is for most of us. And it's very easy to love someone and want to please someone uh, when they're making you feel as good as a human being can feel. Uh, I think that's one of the functions of sex. Well, from a, from a uh, uh, from an evolutionary point of view, sex feels this good, so we'll have children. The genes want to get out of the body and the genes. I'm talking about now the concept of the selfish gene, which I'll do a whole show on. I won't do it now. But you could look at yourself as a human being, the biologists tell us, uh, as a package carrying around your genes and uh, unconsciously the desire is to get those genes uh, out and into other people so that your genes will exist independent of you and live after you. That's one of the basic tenets of the uh, evolutionary psychology. But our psychology, so much of it is unconsciously driven. And um, sex being as intensely pleasurable and desire being as powerful as it is um, really ensures that children will be born. Now, of course, with new birth control, that's all been changed. Sex now for pleasure, uh, in many cases, supersedes until there is a choice uh, in so many cases, to have children or not to have children. And um, uh, it just dawns on me, maybe I should talk a little bit about my experience about couples who don't have children, but not right now. So that when you have um, uh, this this uh, intense uh, sexuality, it's very easy uh, to relate and to love the other person and to uh, want to please them. Very easy. But as time goes by, the economic pressures that I've been talking about, the presence of children, all change that, and it has to be renegotiated. And it has to be worked at. Every good marriage I've seen uh, experiences some crisis, uh, experiences tensions, uh, experiences conflict over these issues, because they come unexpected. Nobody can tell us what's going to happen. Uh, We see our parents' marriage for all of its worth, for all of its good points, its strengths, and its weaknesses, but we're not inside that relationship. We don't experience it. When we ourselves are married, when we ourselves in long-term relationship, we now experience, and what we begin to experience is in many cases a surprise. It comes upon us. It's like a uh, hurricane uh, that hasn't been predicted 
And so here we find ourselves suddenly with children or uh, the interference of, of in-laws. I think I talked about that last week. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we discover that uh, the loyalty of our spouse is more to his primary family than us. Uh, and that is, uh, unless it ends, is a killer to a relationship. Uh, did I talk about that last week? Well, I'll spend a moment again. A couple that I lost uh, that was sent to me by a lawyer. They were a lovely young couple. Uh, but she insisted that her mother come shopping. And uh, he objected. Uh, he liked the woman. But he wanted, with his wife, to pick the material, the, the, the uh, draperies, the furniture, the rugs the dishes, and she was always there, and she put her two cents in, uh, which was not a particularly great, insightful thing for her to do. Uh, again, like the parents who interfere with the raising of their grandchildren, um, uh, which can be the kiss of death, uh, you know, you think you know more, you think you know better, but the fact of the matter is they are the parents, and it's their marriage you're stepping into with all kinds of uh, consequences. And so uh, this particular woman uh, kept saying she didn't like the furniture that he liked, and the daughter went with the mother. And this continued, and they went for counseling, and then they had come to me for counseling. They were sent by a lawyer who used to send me uh, cases where he felt that uh, one more try should be made at saving the marriage. Uh, in some cases, he simply went through with the divorce. But in some cases, he saw there was a real quality in that relationship. It had been good at one point. Uh, in many cases, they even still loved each other. But the tension wasn't being resolved. So before he would go ahead with the divorce, he would insist on a consult uh, with, with a therapist. And sometimes I would get that uh, referral. And the end came when she agreed and agreed and agreed. Uh, and then they made up to buy, of all things, shower curtains. And the mother was not going to be there, and she just showed up. And truth to form, she discussed that uh, she liked the red ones, he liked the blue ones. And the girl said, well, I think I like my, my, what my mother likes. And that was it. Uh, he called me and said, uh, no more. Uh, I married my wife. I didn't marry my mother-in-law. Uh, I want to come first. And uh, the lawyer called me and said he was uh, going through and instigating and, and, and uh, carrying out their dictates, his wishes, that there be a divorce. I never heard from them again. I thought it was rather sad. But again, this is, this is some of the things that happen in a relationship. So as the, the changes take place, there are internal changes to the relationship as well. Let me tell you a story because I'm always telling stories, so it's one of my favorites, because this struck me. When I went for my Ph.D., uh, I, had been, I was married uh, one day after my 22nd birthday. My wife was 20. And I look back now and I say, boy, were we kids. And, uh, well, it was a different time to grow up, which is another topic, but uh, we were married, and... I got into my Ph.D. program, and I went after I graduated college at 22, and I stayed at my college, at City College, for a master's that I didn't finish, which then when I was accepted to NYU for my doctorate, uh, the credits were my first-year credits for the uh, doctorate. Right? 
because uh, there was a relationship, a, a strong relationship between City College's Department of Psychology and NYU. Many, when NYU started its doctoral program in clinical psychology, many of the professors uh, who were teaching in it moved from City College to NYU. That was part of the deal that, that had been worked out. I discovered, I met my classmates, and there were 19 of us uh, chosen that year. 19 because that's how much money they had from NIMH and NIH, National Institute of Mental Health, National Institute of Health, and various organizations, so that none of us had to pay for our PhD. Are you hearing this, folks? Uh, I, this is another side, and, and I can't imagine how lucky I was to live at that time. I went to City College at a time where I paid $11 a semester student activities fee. My wife went to what was then now Hunter College uptown. Uh, uh, it's now Lehman College, uh, where the student activities fee, I think, was less. She got her books. She was given her books. But I paid $88 for a first-class college education. Uh, impossible now. Impossible. City University is still uh, a good bargain. It's still cheap, but it not like that. And then for the PhD, which can cost two hundred thousand dollars and leave people in monstrous debt, uh, which if you're a psychologist, it's going to be very hard to pay off. You can earn a living at psychology, and some people make uh, some really good money, but most of us um, earn the living. Uh, and 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 uh, to pay off that kind of money, but none of us had to pay off. So 19 of us, and I got to know these people, and most of them were married. By the time I graduated, almost all, not all, but almost all of them were divorced. Okay. What happened? Well, what happened is that when one person develops an intense interest that the other doesn't have, and when one person grows intellectually in a direction that the other person doesn't grow, or in this case, and, and, and let me tell you, when you go to college, I've seen this again. I've had patients where they were high school sweethearts, they got married, and one went to college. Most often it was the man. Uh, the, the man earned a living, or, or the man went at night, and the wife, if they had a baby right away, she stayed home with the children. Uh, and he struggled this way, and that changed him. Uh, uh, she's with the baby, and by the way, uh, nothing could be harder than to raise a child. <clears throat> Staying home with a child uh, is something that I think has to be the hardest thing in the world, and I think my wife would agree with that. It's a very difficult task, uh, particularly if you have a very bright woman uh, who... who uh, worked and had her own career ideals. But the male works very hard outside the home, um, and he goes to school. In this case, at NYU, when I went there, you had to be a resident. So for three years, you had to take courses and be full-time so that somebody had to support you. Uh, in this case, my wife worked as a teacher, and she supported me. Um, what would, would happen is that when you, one co goes to college or goes to advanced education, this is not just layering something on. It's transformative. So what happened when I went into my Ph.D. program, I got absolutely fascinated with my career with psychology. 
And people would get together socially, and all they would talk about is psychology. And I'm sure this happens when somebody gets involved in any career that they find fascinating. They go on and on, and they develop relationships. Uh, there were a number of affairs that took place among the students. That, uh, And again, this is not just my class, but there was a class before us. And after a year, there was a class after us. There was a number of affairs and love relationships, and all kinds of things transformed the members of the relationship so that one grew away from the other intellectually, emotionally, and socially. And um, this, this led to the breakup of the great majority of these marriages. Today, none of this, most of us, if this was redone today, it would have been a very different story because most people don't marry at 20 or 21 or 22. Uh, it becomes impossible to do in many cases because of economics. Um, and so uh, that there would be a change. People marry, tend to marry, I think the average age of marriage now is 26 or 27 for the woman and maybe 28, 29 for the man. In any event, when people grow and they don't keep an us that's common, when they don't keep a core of interests, they move apart. It becomes extremely difficult to relate when one person is fascinated and, and I'll almost use the word obsessed with something and the other isn't uh, and, and uh, doesn't even understand the discussions that are taking place. If they're technical, if they're mathematical, um, this becomes a tremendous difficulty for a marriage to survive and renegotiate, unless it's renegotiated, unless there's a core of that us, of the, 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 the common part of the marriage, the couple part of the marriage, that both grow together. So this, too, is an issue that, that needs to be understood in terms of what allows a marriage to continue and grow and thrive or uh, break apart and end. Uh, one final thing, I'm, and then I'm going to stop, and that is not only are there changes in the people within the relationship, but I grew up as an adult in a, in a very tempestuous time in history. The women's movement took place. The civil rights movement took place. The technological advances of society or the regression of society, because I'm not sure... Uh, how good this technology really is for us. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by it, and I certainly wouldn't be on the air now if it wasn't for the technology. But by the same token, uh, all of these things change you from the outside, and they change the nature of the relationship. I know in my case today uh, why I would be the one to go get my advanced education and not my wife. Uh, whether or not she would choose to have children uh, as soon as she wanted to have children, uh, all of these things really may have been very different were somehow we would have to met uh, now, uh, in this time, or, or in the, instead of the, 50, the, 60, the late 50s and the 60s when we met, uh, 1960 we met, uh, had we met in the 70s, had we met in the 80s, had we met in the 90s, uh, I think that the way in which society changed socially, economically, uh, technologically uh, would have made for a very different relationship. 
with uh, all kinds of consequences that I can't even predict. So, let me think about doing uh, more stories of marriage on another show. I'm going to think about that before I put something else down. I certainly haven't covered this topic in any way to my satisfaction, although I, I think we hit a, I hit a lot of issues. Uh, anybody wants to call me now at uh, 646-716-7756? Uh, if there's somebody there, again, I'm, I'm getting a lot of action after I hang up, but not when I'm on, and there doesn't seem to be too many people there. Uh, which meaning I don't quite understand. In any event, um, if you send me a message about a topic you'd like me to discuss, I would think that would be wonderful. Um, uh, I would talk with you, and maybe you would even co-host this thing with me. Uh, you can be part of the show. I can make that happen. And uh, if we could work it out uh, so I know basically what will happen when I'm on the air. In any event, I'd like to hear from you. Um, I look forward to uh, getting a lot of uh, action from this show, like I've had from the last four or five. If you really like this, tell your friends. Uh, I still don't know how to use Facebook or Twitter. Uh, I send out a message to Facebook and Twitter that I'm broadcasting live on the air, but I don't know how many people end up seeing that. But in any event, uh, it's time for me to hang up. Uh, I have a great oatmeal cookie waiting for me and a cup of tea. <clears throat> and since nobody is calling in, I'm going to say good night and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>